To whom then will you liken me, that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. We're engaged in a series on the power of God, the power of God over magic, which is really the power of God over paganism over sorcery, witches, the power of nature, yes, even astrology. For it is the Lord our God who made the heavens and the stars and everything in them. The billions of galaxies, each with billions of stars, we're told. That was an enormous display of omnipotence. After that, you would think every right-thinking individual on earth would see what Isaiah declared in chapter 40, that no one compares to the Holy One of Israel. He is El Shaddai, God Almighty. As Job asked in Job eleven seven, can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? We're probing a little bit about that power today in Acts chapter 8, if you want to open there, and we're considering the power of God over even what Jesus labeled the night that he was arrested in Luke twenty-two fifty-three, the power of darkness. There, there is power in darkness. God has allowed darkness to have its limited power, its day, and the powers of darkness work. They have their seats of authority. They have a certain amount of power over nature. That power is real. It's not imagined. But God's power is greater. Amen? It's real. It's unstoppable. The power of false religions, the power of pagans, the power of those who worship nature, the power of nature itself cannot hold a candle to the one who made all of them. Now, our outline has been basically learning the supremacy of God's power in four stages. The first we covered a couple of weeks ago was the proclamation of God's power. Stage one was the proclamation of God's power. That was in Romans, in Acts 8, verses 5 through 8. In response to the persecution that broke out in the church in Jerusalem after Stephen's martyrdom, we read of Philip going right on up to Samaria to the north of Jerusalem and proclaiming boldly the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was relying on what Romans 1.16 calls the gospel of God, which is the power of God unto salvation. And in that, we saw Philip's heart for evangelism. We hope that we have a heart like him. In stage two, we kind of took a look at the attempted imitation of God's power in verses 9 through 11. We saw that supernatural power is at work. It's not always directly from the hand of God, but from demons And it is used in genuine pagan magical arts. Demons who through their many years of existence in this world have learned to master some things in nature, studying way beyond what our scientists know, have learned a few things and discovered some things and can do some things in nature that we cannot yet. They can imitate God's power to a degree. Simon Magus was one of the better ones at that. And uh, he was not, as some interpreters say, just a trickster or an illusionist. He demonstrated real power. And for what reason did God forbid magic and forbid sorcery and forbid witchcraft in Israel and forbid it in the church if it wasn't actually real? Why would God forbid dealing with it? Of course it's real. Of course there's a power there. But as impressed as people were with Simon's power, Simon was more impressed with what he saw in Philip's power. And so today, we deal with the third stage, the third point, and that is the superiority of God's power, and that's in verses 12 through 17, if you kind of focus on those verses today, 12 to 17, and I'll read them. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was, there it is, constantly amazed. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard 
that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. We're going to pause there for today. Now, we're going to take today to do some bragging. There is an appropriate time to brag, and I'm going to do that this morning. I'm not going to brag about myself. Uh, I'm here to brag about the superior power of God Almighty. I hope you'll join me in this boast this morning. In verses 12 through 17, we see two evidences or two proofs of God's superior power. The first is just in the message, the superior message that went out and what that message accomplished in people's lives. And then behind that, we see the superior power of the Holy Spirit. Talk a lot about the Holy Spirit. I don't think we as believers understand the magnitude of the power of the Holy Spirit, and I hope we get a little taste of that today. Let's start with a superior message. If you hone in on verse 12, it says, When they believed Philip, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Messiah, Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. So what happened here? The Samaritans had hundreds of years of their own history. Some of it was religious. They had their own teachers. They had their own traditions. They even had more recently this guy named Simon Magus, and he had joined some kind of Hebrew religion along with some paganism, a syncretistic kind of religion, and he had brought that to the Samaritans, and they were amazed by him. They had been following this quasi-paganism, this distorted religion. But Philip shows up in town the first few days, and he starts preaching, and the people instantly give their attention to him and to his preaching. In fact, they do more than just show interest. It says as they're listening, they begin to embrace the message. This is very good news. The Samaritans are the first group outside of the Jews in Jerusalem and probably the vicinity around Jerusalem who have accepted and believed the good news about our Jesus. Hooray, we could say. Go God, go gospel, it's starting to move. We should be cheering this on. We should be excited about this, except, of course, this all happened in history, right? But we're still excited about it. Jesus told his followers this would happen right before he was ascended. He looked them in the eyes and said, you will wait in Jerusalem, you'll receive power from the Holy Spirit, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and what was the next place he said? Samaria. You're going to go to Samaria before you get to the ends of the earth. He wanted this to happen. That's Acts 1.8, by the way. This is the next place beyond Jerusalem and Judea that Jesus said they were supposed to be witnesses in. And Philip took that prophecy by Jesus to heart, and he went right on up there or down there in elevation, but up north, and he began to preach. And God remembered these Samaritans. Please understand that there was a time way back in the past where these Samaritans, who are now half Israeli and half pagan, right, in their background, half Gentile, half Israeli, that in their background they'd been part of the ten tribes of Israel and were in covenant with God, and God remembered that. God remembered them. God was faithful to them. God did not abandon them. God is a gracious and a giving God. He doesn't forget people. And he was here to bring the message of the Jewish king, the son of David, which, by the way, was, you know, down there in Jerusalem and was part of the rival kingdom that they had for so many years. And they were going to have to acknowledge that the real kingdom was not in their domain. It was down there. But he remembered them. He was giving them a chance to come in the line with the message of the kingdom. That's what he was giving. And it says here, they believed. And that's not something you always hear in evangelism, is it? You go out and you say, yeah, I got the witness of someone. Did they accept the Lord? No, but I think they're thinking about it. <laughs> so often the good news is presented. And hardly anyone, it seems, believed. You know that. We're dealing with tough, hardened Americans. We're Americans. We're rich. We're proud. We're self-reliant. We don't need anything anymore. We're the greatest country in the world, greatest military power. This is how our psyche is, right? And so people have a hard time saying, you know, we're poor and we're in need and we need a savior. 
No, people are into their self-esteem and they're into their self-fulfillment and the power of positive thinking. Why do they need anything outside of that, so they think? People today feel entitled. They need to get more from the government and more this and more that. This, just because what? Just because they're Americans. God says the gospel is usually embraced by those who are downtrodden, those who are poor. In fact, it states that in James chapter 2, verse 5. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith? Yes, he did. God made a general choice of the kind of people he wanted to respond to the gospel, and they were not the rich and famous. And we should quit praying, God, send us a few rich and famous so we'll have money to finish our building program. No. Send us people that want to respond to the gospel, right? Well, these Samaritans did not have much status in the world. They had been downtrodden by the Romans. Before that, they were downtrodden by the Greeks and other civilizations. They were looked down upon by the pure Hebrews to the south. The ten tribes had been scattered abroad, most of whom did not return. Those that stayed in the land were not the rich. They were too poor to even bother yanking off the land. But now they have a message of a kingdom that's being given to them, and the riches of Christ have come to them. And Luke records widespread belief at Philip's preaching in Samaria. I don't know about you, but like the angels in heaven get excited over one sinner who repents, this is worthy of getting excited about, right? Mass conversions. How much more should we rejoice? Listen, God rewarded Philip's boldness with a harvest of souls. Who knows what boldness God is waiting for to see come from your life and how he might reward it? Oh, he might test it at first. It might not go all that well at first. You might stick your neck out and feel like God let it get cut off first because he will test your faith. But if you would just be a little more bold, see what God might do with it. This man put a mark on his own back when he stood up right after his friend had been killed and said, I'm going to preach Jesus. I mean, the apostles were not surrounding him. He just went down there. Man's just a deacon. What's he doing? He said, I don't care. I'm going preaching. The message was way too important to keep silent. Stephen knew that. He gave his life for it, right? He testified to the Sanhedrin. He died for that message. Philip knew it too. These are words of eternal life. Who else has words that when you listen to them, when you die, you're going to have a bodily resurrection, live forever in a kingdom? Who else has words like that? Nobody. It reminds me of Paul after his conversion, how he felt about evangelism. 1 Corinthians 9, 16. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast about, Paul said. For I am under compulsion, for woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. These men were constrained to preach. They were constrained to get the message out. It's that important. Thus, Philip preached. Now, preaching is heralding the good news. Literally, it said Philip was evangelizing. Preaching, I've told you this before, preaching and personal sharing are the main two ways that God spread the gospel throughout the entire Roman world in the first century. That's all they needed. It's nice that we have movies nowadays. It's nice that we have internet. But just from preaching and going out and talking, the gospel spread through the whole Roman world. And you can do that, can you not? Are we shutting down? Is time over? <laughs> Sorry, I'll keep preaching in the dark here. We'll just keep going. Okay. What is the gospel you are to preach? It's good news. It's good news. The Christian church has a message for the world, and it's good news. The way the mainstream media treats the church, you'd think we had bad news. That's just Satan using men and women that he controls to slander the church. The good news is the message about Jesus and his kingdom. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel. Listen, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried. Yes, the burial of Christ is part of the gospel. And that on the third day, he what? He was raised. He was raised from the dead. You know, no one else has a man risen from the dead in human history with hundreds of eyewitnesses. That's the gospel. That's human history. It's not a religion. It's true. It happened in history. It should be taught in every single history course of the world. The most important event that ever happened in human history was not when the chimpanzees turned into human beings. Is when Jesus was raised from the dead. By the way, the other thing didn't actually happen. <laughs> and, and if you believe that gospel, 
when you die, you will be raised from the dead. You have everlasting life. That's good news. If you don't believe, there's no side door into heaven. You won't get in any other way. Jesus said, I'm the door. Anyone who enters through me shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. It was the powerful name of Jesus Christ that he preached and that saved. Powerful name. The name of Jesus and his kingdom. That's a powerful message. God demonstrated his power in Jesus' earthly life, even through his preaching, but also through his miracles. Jesus went out and he did miracles. He had power over the unclean spirits. He had power over all of the diseases. He showed power over nature. And then he went and spoke, and they said, never have we heard a man speak with such power. And the apostles picked up that message and they preached. And and tens of thousands of Jews in the Jerusalem area came to Christ. And now Philip is taking that powerful message and it's invading the territory of the Samaritans. And there's been all this entrenched paganism and it's just starting to take over. You can imagine there were people upset about that, right? They had their businesses built on paganism. And now this new message comes in, this new guy rolls in, and he just starts preaching and he just starts taking over lives. Why? Because it's powerful. The message is power. Unlike the Jews who largely rejected the message, the Samaritans here are said to largely believe it. You know, God's grace moves mysteriously. It moves where it will. No one can predict where it's going to move next. They say it's exploding in China now, but it's against the law. Here, you could be a Christian, nobody wants it. Where is the gospel going to move next? We should have as part of our strategy, where is the gospel moving? Is, are these the kind of people that are receiving the Lord? Then we need to put a little more energy and effort into that. You see what I'm saying? It, 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 maybe they're not the kind of people that you like. doesn't matter. Is this country responding to the gospel? We need to send a missionary out there, you see? Where, where are people responding to the gospel? Let's put our energies into that as well. I'm not trying to say we neglect the others. Preach it, in other words, to those who will accept it. Just makes common sense. If they're, if they're going to receive it, send some more workers there, yes? That's where the harvest is, you know? You got a field over here and there's nothing to harvest. You got a field over here and there's something to harvest. Where do you send the workers? Not over there. Well, as the proof of the faith that they had, notice they submitted to water baptism. Do you see that? People denigrate water baptism these days. Churches act as if Jesus never gave this as an ordinance. They could just kind of use it as an option. But look, here it is. And, and the verb in Greek is in the imperfect tense, and that means it was a continuous action of baptism. In other words, as people believed, they immediately came forward. They demonstrated their faith by what? By being water baptized. Baptism is the believer's first act of obedience. They were not required to give a public testimony of their faith. They were not required to speak something. They were required to stand up in public and in front of others, be baptized. That was required. Water baptism is required of every believer. No, not to save you to show the world that you believe and that God has given you new life. Well, there's four quick truths I want to give you about baptism here. You can jot them down. First is that baptism should happen immediately after conversion, whenever that's possible. Notice how quickly it happened here. They believe they were baptized, right? Of course, back then there was no confusion about what baptism is, so nothing needed to be explained. It was immediately understood. You're identifying with Jesus Christ. That's what it is. You're now doing that publicly. You're going to be one of his followers, so you're going to be baptized. Everybody understood that you didn't need a class. Now it's sort of mumbo-jumbo, and sometimes we have to put a class in there, but it needs to be done as quickly as possible, right? You believe, you be baptized. You don't wait 10 years. You don't wait you know, three years or something like that. You believe, you get baptized. Second, faith must always precede baptism. Notice it wasn't they got baptized and they sat down to listen to what this message was about. That's one of the reasons we don't support infant baptism. Why? Because they get baptized before they're saved. That's exactly the opposite pattern of Scripture. Scripture says first you believe, then you get baptized. It's so simple. It's right there. We don't go to passages of Scripture that are obscure to figure out what baptism is about. We go to the passages that talk about baptism, and there, lo and behold, it's very simple. Believe, then what? Get baptized. Not hard. It's not hard, guys. Not rocket science. Third, baptism was by submersion. Do you see that in there? Look carefully. It's in there. Don't you see them getting dunked in there? You don't see that in there. 
It is always my dunking because that's what the word baptism means. It's too bad we transliterated it rather than translate it. It would have been they were being submerged in the name of Jesus Christ. That's what the term means. It wasn't sprinkling, it wasn't pouring, it wasn't shooting with a squirt gun. It was taking them, it was putting them all the way under. Why? Because the symbolism of him is important. You lost your old life, it's gone, and now you're being raised to new life with Christ. Your sins have to be completely washed away, not partly washed away, and they're going to be washed away by the blood of Christ, but the water is the symbol of that happening. Fourth truth is that baptism is individualistic and non-discriminatory. That's actually five, but I threw them together. Individualistic and non-discriminatory. Each person who believed had to step forward to be baptized. There was no baptism by proxy. There was no group baptism. No one else can believe for you. No one else can be baptized for you. And notice both men and women believed. Both men and women were baptized, right? The man didn't go and get baptized for his family. The woman had to go and be baptized. It was her choice too. Luke has been very careful to point this out in Acts, that it was both men and women who were coming to Christ. It was both men and women who were being persecuted it was both men and women who were being baptized. Luke is very careful to show the equality of women in the existence of the church. Baptism follows belief immediately, is required of all believers, is by immersion and must be done individually. You must make that choice for Christ yourself, and then you need to step forward to be baptized. Surprisingly, and here we see some of Luke's skill in weaving together the storyline, verse 13 if you look at it, It says, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip, and as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Simon. Not Simon Peter, Simon Magus. Well, this profession of faith by Simon is amazing, but it's also puzzling. Simon, we learned before, was a pagan. He had mastered the pagan arts. Simon loved power. Simon made contacts with familial spirits, i.e. demons. Simon was able to manifest their power in certain ways and was called the great power of God. Can the gospel save a man who's entrenched in that kind of lifestyle? Absolutely, of course, save anybody. But was Simon really saved? Was his believing in Christ the kind that abandons his previous allegiances, or did he have some ulterior motive? Clearly, in a case like this, discernment is needed. At first reading, it looks pretty promising. It states he believed. It also states he was baptized publicly, right? It even says he continued on with Philip. Then it says he was amazed at the signs taking place, the great miracles. But there were plenty of people in the Bible that it says they believed and were not actually saved. Did you know that? They were said to believe or even began to follow Christ, but then they changed their minds or their motives were revealed in time to not be the right kind of motive. One example of this is in the Gospel of John in chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. It speaks of this very thing. I'll read it for you. Now, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many, now listen, believed in his name. That sounds promising, doesn't it? Observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. For he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. So they saw the signs, the miracles, and they said he must be the Messiah, and they were believing in him, but he knew something else was going on inside them. He knew their faith was driven by the miracles, not driven by personal repentance from sin. Do you see that? And so there is spurious and falsely motivated believers Jesus would not commit himself to people like that. Also, another example is John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. It says, Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, he didn't say, great, you believed in me, you're saved. He said, if you continue in my word, 
then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and truth will set you free, which is always butchered by everyone in politics, right? You'll know the truth and set you free. Yeah, that's about the truth of the gospel, guys, okay? So we get a new convert, someone that professes faith, and we say, ah, once saved, always saved. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then you're saved. You're truly a disciple of mine. You have to persevere in your faith. You have to prove that you're starting out with Christ had the right motive, that you came because you wanted your sins washed away and you wanted new life, and it wasn't to get rich, it wasn't to get power, it wasn't for some other reason because you wanted to marry your girlfriend. You came because you wanted new life in Christ and you admit your old life's not worth it. You wanted a washing. And if you're like that, you will persevere with Christ, right? So the word believe doesn't do enough to help us say that Simon was saved. Water baptism guarantees nothing either. It's just water going over the body. The condition of the heart is the key, right? We don't believe in the doctrine of baptismal regeneration. That is, that in the actual rite and act of baptism, somehow, because of the priesthood, that act causes someone to be born again by the Holy Spirit. How does that work? Well, that's why they have holy water. We don't have holy water. We have water water. We have H2O. But they don't have holy water either. There's nothing special about their water. And you get baptized by a priest that says, because of this baptism, you're born again. You're believing a lie. You're not born again. Baptism is water. It's a symbol of what has to happen. The one who causes you to be born again is the Holy Spirit. He's the only one powerful enough to give you new spiritual life. 1 Peter 1.23, for you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring Word of God. That's what the Holy Spirit takes. He takes the Word of God, plants it inside of you, and causes the new birth to be inside of you, just like a seed that's put inside of you. Now there's new life inside of you. It's the Holy Spirit who does that in you. Supernatural act of recreation. Water can't do that. Well, what about Simon continuing with Philip? That looks good. Unfortunately, what Simon was focused on and more fascinated with was what? The power. Oh, yeah, the power. Not, hey, teach me to pick up my cross and follow after Christ. No, I want to know how to get healthy and wealthy and have power. I think Simon viewed Philip as a greater magician than himself. What is this guy doing? I'll become his disciple. What's the source of his power? Kept watching him. Yes, Simon was impressed with power, God's power. Simon confessed that whatever powers he was tapping into were no match for the power of God. That's the little comparison I don't want you to miss. Simon was the great power of God, the great pagan. And he said, wow, I'm amazed at this power. That's sort of the way of comparing Christianity with paganism. Do you see that? The power of Christianity, the power of the gospel, and the power of paganism. There, it kind of comes out of his own mouth. Whether he was saved or not, we're not 100% sure. I don't think he's saved. But one thing's for sure. He knew this power that God had was greater. In fact, do you know the same word amazed that was used of the people of Samaria were amazed at Simon's displays of power. It now says that exact same word is used that he was amazed at Philip's display of power. That's how much greater God's power is than that. Well, there is evidence against Simon being a true believer. We'll get into that next time, actually. It's strong, I think very strong. If you just glance down to verses 18 to 24, you'll see some of this. I'll give a survey of it right now. Simon wanted to buy the power of the Holy Spirit with money. Obviously, there's something a little off with his understanding about the gospel, right? His motive doesn't seem to be to be saved from sin, but to gain power for himself. By the way, Peter directly tells him, Simon, your heart is not right before God. What an indictment. Peter also declared that Simon had no portion in the kingdom of God. I think that about nails it. In fact, Peter said, you're still in bondage to sin, and it can never be said of a believer they're in bondage to sin, according to Romans 6.17. And then, of course, later you see the Samaritans receiving the Holy Spirit, and we have no record of Simon receiving the Holy Spirit. Instead, he's trembling with fear that he's still under the wrath of God. You know, in a world where people have all kinds of motives for being involved with Christianity, 
we must show discernment. So-and-so is a great dancer or a great movie guy. What do you call that? Actor. (laughs) I'm a Christian. And everyone goes, oh, did you know so-and-so is a Christian? Really? Give it a little bit of time. Give it a little bit of analysis before we say that they're a Christian. There are a lot of reasons people wear crosses around their neck or have them tattooed to their body. And they're not all good reasons. There are just so many who attach themselves to the name of Christ for political gain, for popularity, for health and wealth. That's huge these days. And yes, for power. Those motives save nobody. The Holy Spirit would have us be discerning who our true brothers are. Now, that's the powerful message. Now we look at the superior power itself, and that's the Holy Spirit in verses 14 through 17. Look at verse 14. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them, Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Well, news of the conversion of the Samaritans traveled quickly right back up to Jerusalem. Good news travels fast. It is described as they're receiving the Word of God. Notice that word, receiving the Word of God. The apostles were still residing in Jerusalem. Remember, the other believers fled in the persecution, not the apostles. They held tight. They continued to bear their witness in the very city in which Jesus was raised from the dead. Notice that all of the apostles were there, and they were all in on this decision. The apostles, as a group, decided that they would send Peter and John. So now, in a sense, Peter and John are double apostles because they were chosen by Jesus to be sent by Jesus. That's what the word apostle means, a sent one. They were Jesus' apostles, and now they're being sent by the Jerusalem church on a short-term mission as well. Peter's name is listed first because Peter was the leader of the apostles. Peter was the spokesman for all of them. And these two apostles, Peter and John, did so much of the leading of early Christianity Paul reveals that they were considered pillars of the church in Galatians chapter 2. So they came, they came downhill to Samaria. What was the purpose of their mission? This is interesting. Well, at least three purposes. First, they came to confirm the work of Philip. In other words, they added their testimony that Philip has done a fine work. He's been preaching a good gospel. They're endorsing his evangelistic efforts. By the way, there's a lesson from that when people work together, right? Someone else is being blessed in their ministry. You don't frown upon that. You join and you help them with that, right? You're excited that God is doing something good through them. That's what Peter and John are doing here. But second, I think they also came to expand and extend that work. If you glance all the way down to verse 25, you can see that Peter and John also, on their way back to Jerusalem, decided that they would start preaching in the cities of Samaria as well, the villages, really. They took the good news from village to village. But there's a third reason that they came, and that is that the Samaritans, the Samaritan believers, that is, might receive the Holy Spirit. Some people get confused about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and they get confused about that doctrine from this very passage because there was a delay between people believing and getting saved and their receiving the Holy Spirit. In fact, there's some Christian denominations that have developed a whole theology from this very delay. They think there's a difference between receiving the Holy Spirit Time passes by after you're saved, and then later you get empowered by the Holy Spirit who would come upon you. So first you'd receive the Spirit, and then the Spirit would come down upon you, and you would be maybe five years later or two years later or however long it is. It's not really about the time. It's just that there's a delay. You would be later empowered. So some people in the church only have the Holy Spirit, but others are really empowered by the Holy Spirit. Besides that, obviously, splitting the church with the haves and the have-nots There are other problems with that doctrine. Notice that in this very passage, the description of receiving the Holy Spirit and then the Holy Spirit falling down on them are equated. 
It's exactly the same thing. Whatever the experience is of receiving the Holy Spirit is exactly the same experience as the Holy Spirit falling upon them. Just compare verse 15, the Greek term lambano, receive the Holy Spirit. And then with he fell upon them, epipipto as well. There's no difference between having or possessing the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit falling upon them. No difference at all. In other words, believers have the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit fell on them. When the Spirit fell on them, then they possessed the Holy Spirit. It's not two steps, it's one step. These Samaritan believers didn't have the Holy Spirit at all, and they got Him in one step. The real question is, why did this happen after their salvation? We'll get to that question in a minute. But first, I want you to see that the rest of Scripture agrees with this, that everybody, every believer has the Spirit of God. I want you to keep a finger here in uh, Acts chapter 8, and we're going to use the analogy of Scripture and go to some cross-references so you can see this for yourself. Keep your finger in Acts, and let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Please turn and notice some of these verses yourself. This will be helpful as you put this together in your own mind. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. Now, the context is about spiritual gifts. We're not going to talk about spiritual gifts. But the context is also talking about the church, which is the body of Christ, and that there are many members in the body, and all the members do not have the same function, but they're all one body in Christ. Every single believer is part of the body of Christ. You come down to verse 12 of chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 12, and we'll start reading from there. It says, even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. And then verse 13 For by one spirit, or it could be translated in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. So there's your baptism and empowering of the Holy Spirit, right? Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. And then it says, look, very carefully, we were all made to what? To drink from one spirit. We were all, that's every single believer in the body of Christ, were made to drink from one spirit. There's no such thing as a believer who hasn't drunk from the Spirit of God. There's no such thing as a believer that doesn't have the Spirit of God. That empowering and baptism of the Spirit is equated with the drinking of the Holy Spirit. Again, the, the coming on and the receiving are the same. And therefore, all believers, no distinction at all. And what makes it even more important is that these Corinthian believers were not all that spiritual, and yet Paul said, all of you have the Spirit of God. I want to give you another verse which is important as well. Besides 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we'll go to Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. This is talking about the the new covenant blessings of the believer. And you go to verse 9 of Romans 8, it says, you are not in the flesh. It's talking about an unredeemed person who's in the flesh. Now, we do have struggles with the flesh, but we're not described as in the flesh. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, talking about in the Holy Spirit. In other words, your location now as a believer is you are in the Spirit. Now, Paul's writing to Romans to all believers, and he's saying this is categorically true of all believers. You are in the Spirit if indeed the Spirit of God lives inside of you. In other words, if if you have received the Spirit, then He's inside of you, and indeed you belong to Him. But look what he says next. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ... He does not belong to him. So obviously, every single true Christian has to have who? The Holy Spirit living inside of them. If you don't have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, you're not even said to belong to Christ. And then he goes on to talk about if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. And then he goes on to talk about the power of the Holy Spirit working inside the life of a believer. But my point is that that's true of all believers. We could take time and we could go to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13, again, where Paul is writing to all believers. And he says that you were, you were sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise. The Holy Spirit is that seal, that guarantee that one day you're going to get an inheritance. Well, that's not true of some believers. That's true of all believers. If you're a believer in Jesus, you have been given the Spirit of God. You've received the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God has fallen on you. It doesn't matter whether you felt it or not. It happened to you. It's what the Word of God says. 
And so there are several verses in the New Testament that make it clear that all Christians have the Holy Spirit, pray in the Spirit, live in the power of the Spirit, work in the Spirit. All of that is assumed that we wouldn't even have any relationship to Christ at all. We couldn't even be in His body if we were not attached by the Spirit to Him. It's the Spirit who attaches us to the head who is Christ who is in the heavens. Now that is why, coming back to Acts chapter 8, this verse has caused such puzzlement. Because clearly it says here that they believed and were water baptized, but had not received the Holy Spirit. That's what it says. And they didn't receive the Holy Spirit from Philip. They only received the Holy Spirit when the apostles Peter and John came down and then prayed for them and then laid their hands on them. What is that all about? Why would they need to pray for them to receive the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit automatically came to the Jews? The first Jews, Pentecost, the Spirit fell on them, right? That's Acts chapter 2. We've been through that. Then what happened to all the other Jews that started believing? They just instantly got the Holy Spirit. There wasn't a repeat of Pentecost each time. They just, there were more believers and, and they just received the Holy Spirit. In fact, that's exactly what Peter said to them. He said, repent and be baptized. This is Acts chapter 2, verse 38. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's promised for you and your children. So they repented and they baptized and it doesn't even say what happened. They received the Holy Spirit. They got them. They were baptized in the Holy Spirit. They received the Holy Spirit. They drank from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was inside of them. There was no reason to state it. Why didn't that happen with the Samaritans? Knew there was something wrong with those Samaritans. (laughs) Well, here there's a delay. Is this delay in Acts 8 meant to be a pattern for us to follow? Church, hey, come forward, receive Jesus as Savior, wait a few weeks, come back and receive the Holy Spirit. Is this a pattern we're supposed to follow? Some churches say yes. I think we resoundingly say no. It's not a pattern. It's an exception. You don't make a pattern out of an exception. Even in the book of Acts, there really wasn't even a definitive pattern. If you were to go through Acts and say, we're going to do exactly what the book of Acts says, you'd have trouble because in Acts 2, they got the Holy Spirit without anybody laying hands on them. And then they had the rushing wind and the flames of fire and all of that. That never happened again. If you... Go forward to Acts chapter 10 when the gospel first goes out to the Gentiles and the first Gentiles believe they get the Holy Spirit and nobody lays hands on them. Hmm. The answer for this delay is already embedded in the book of Acts. And we always make the point that God, when he wrote the Bible, he wrote a book. Yes, it's a book. And as a book, he intends us to read it Not piecemeal, not a little here, a little there, and make our doctrine, but to read it in context. We don't pull out whatever speaks to our hearts and then, this is what I think it means. We don't do that. That is a misuse of Scripture. Unfortunately, that misuse of Scripture is the norm for many church leaders today. Context matters. And Acts is a history book. It records the history of transition between the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the new covenant. Jesus enacted that new covenant at the end of his life. So you'll read through most of the Gospels, and all of that's happening in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is actually in the Old Testament, in a sense, because it's under the Old Covenant, because it's not until Jesus was crucified that the blood of the covenant was spilt for the new covenant, you see? So when you get to Acts, the early chapters in Acts, they're going through a transition from being under the Old Covenant into the New Covenant. All the groups are. It's recording that history of transition. Jesus' historical work had to first be finished and accomplished. In John chapter 7, verse 39, it made it very clear that Jesus had not given the Holy Spirit at that point in time in his ministry. Why? Because he had not yet been glorified. He had to go through his history. He had to get to his glory. After he was glorified, he was then allowed to give the Holy Spirit, not before then. There was history at play. When was Jesus glorified? Well, he was glorified in his resurrection. That's true. That happens at the end of the Gospels. But even more so, he was glorified when what? When he ascended into the heavens, right? And he sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. There he was glorified. And there, from there, he poured out the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. 
So none of the disciples of Jesus, Peter, James, John, and any of them, could have gotten the Holy Spirit. They could believe in whatever they were told up to that point in time and be saved, but they were not allowed to have the Holy Spirit. So there had to be a delay in their case before they got the Holy Spirit. It was just history. It was a matter of waiting for the timing. That was not a pattern for us to follow either. It's just history. But with the Samaritans, Jesus has already ascended. He's already been glorified. The Spirit's given. How come they didn't get it? I told you something wrong with these Samaritans. <laughs> the delay is because these are not Jews. Now, that might be stunning to you because we think about the gospel today and we think, but the gospel's for everybody. But you weren't living back in that early time and you don't understand the incredible changes of thought that had to go in the minds of those who were under the old covenant and believe that the dogs and the pagans would be included in the blessings of the kingdom of God. And these compromisers, these Samaritans, who had blasphemed the king in Israel, how would they be included? In fact, all the way up until chapter 15 of Acts, the church is in a massive struggle to understand why are these other people even allowed in? Jesus had taught it, but they didn't get it. The first entire council, we're going to get there eventually in Acts chapter 15, the church, first church council is over. Do we force people to obey the law of Moses in order to be in the kingdom, or can they just get in by faith in Jesus? To us today, we're like, what a bunch of idiots. Of course, just put your faith in Jesus. Back then, they, they, didn't, they didn't get that. Remember what we taught you about the Samaritans. They're half-breeds. They're looked down upon by the Jews. They had intermarried with pagans. They'd set up a rival religion in Samaria to compete with Jerusalem. The apostles in the church up to this point in time were all Jews. There were no Gentiles. There were no half-Gentiles. They were all part of the nation of Israel. It was an easy fit. They viewed themselves as Jews. They weren't even called Christians at this point in time. Jesus was a Jew. He was the son of David. He was king. His kingdom was to be in Jerusalem. The apostles were all Jews. Not one Gentile apostle. And so the Samaritans were only allowed into the kingdom of God through the hands of the Jews. That's why. They had to believe and they had to accept that salvation, as Jesus said, is not from Samaria. It doesn't even come from God directly to Samaria. It comes from God to the Jews, then to Samaria. That's it. The Samaritans had to accept that. Your lower status outside of Christ. They had previously abandoned the house of David... Now they had to come and bow down to the king of David. God made the Samaritans, by this visible acknowledgement, acknowledge Jewish leadership to the church. If you want to try to understand how hard it would have been for a Samaritan to believe in the Jewish king, ask yourself about going and witnessing to a Muslim today and say, you know what? One day, Jesus is going to return. He's going to go to Jerusalem, and he's going to reign over all the nations of the world, including the Muslim nation that you are in. They had to acknowledge that. They had to acknowledge they were wrong. So many Muslims today are taught from grade school to hate the Jews and hate the Christians, by the way. And now we're going to go out. We got good news for you. There's a Jewish king. Jews are dogs. Well, that was a huge stumbling block to them. But it's the only way into the kingdom of God. God chose the nation of Israel. No other, no other. And God's choices are without repentance. He doesn't change his plan. Charles Ryrie says, the best explanation of this delay of receiving the Spirit after faith in the case of the Samaritans lies in the schismatic nature of Samaritan religion. Their worship rivaled Jewish worship in Jerusalem. Therefore, God needed to prove to them that their new Christian faith was not also to, re- to rival the Christian church in Jerusalem. This delay and God's use of Peter and John in conveying the gift of the Spirit saved the early church, from having two rival mother churches. Robert Grimaki 
in his book on the Holy Spirit says the unusual, notice the unusual reception of the Holy Spirit by the Samaritans does not provide a model for all future believers to follow. In fact, it would be impossible to duplicate their situation. There are no apostles in Jerusalem who could come to our town and lay hands on us. Nor did the converts seek a post-conversion experience. They did not even pray for themselves. Philip, who evangelized them, did not pray for them. Rather, Peter and John, with delegated apostolic authority, were the ones who prayed for them to receive the Holy Spirit. After Peter and John came and prayed for them to receive the Holy Spirit, then all the Samaritans understood believing in Jesus meant being under the authority of the Jewish apostles. Jesus kept Jewish apostles in control of his church and he kept the unity of his church under them. Unity only comes in the church when it is centered on the teaching of the apostles. The church must always be loyal to the apostles' teaching in the New Testament. The church must always be apostolic Christianity. And so that was the reason for the delay. And we'll see the same delay, we'll see a little bit of a delay and a need for a separate sign of the receiving of the Holy Spirit when the Gentiles are brought in. The Jewish church is now allowing in the half-believers, and now God is saying to the Jews, I am receiving them, and he's saying to the Samaritans, you are accepting them, and it's now one church. And he did that visibly for them because these were not Jews. When we get to the Gentiles, you'll see the same thing that happens, and he wants to make sure every group that comes into his church understands they all have the same Holy Spirit, and they all are under Jewish leadership, and you'll see that all the way through. Well, I don't have time to talk about more of the superiority of the power of the Holy Spirit to Simon's paganism. I was going to go off on a number of verses, but I'm way over time already. I was going to talk about not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, but I don't have time to talk about that right now. We don't have time to talk about how much greater the power of God is than the power of positive thinking, how much greater it is than the force of Star Wars. We can't do that. How much greater it is than human persuasion or human power management. We have the spirit of the living God working in our lives, brethren. My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, Paul said, but we don't have time to talk about that. But we can at least mention Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. We pray in the Holy Spirit, Jude 20 We are strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, Ephesians 3.16. In one spirit, we have access to God, Ephesians 2.18. Why would we ever turn to any paganism at all? Young people, don't flirt with that stuff. Stay away from it. By the power of the spirit, we put to death the deeds of the sinful flesh, Romans 8.13. The spirit of God is the greater power We boast in and we rely upon. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Father, for sending us not just forgiveness, but empowerment through your spirit that we might taste a little bit of the coming kingdom age and that we might be joined to one another and that we might see you work even when our bodies are frail and we don't feel powerful at all, yet you work. Blessed be your name, Lord God. Amen.